Part seven of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What is Japan? Washington, November fifteen. Of all the national delegations assembled here in Washington, the most acutely scrutinized, the most discussed, and probably the least understood, is the Japanese. The limelight gravitates toward it, moved, one feels, not so much by an extreme respect as by an inordinate curiosity. Of only one other people, I write as a spectator from overseas, does one feel the same sense of the possibility of dramatically unexpected things, and that is the Americans. The Japanese, we feel, we have not found out, and the Americans, we feel, have not found out themselves. Already the Americans have sprung one great surprise upon the conference. Britain, France, Italy, and the other powers in attendance are comparatively calculable, so far as their representation goes. But Japan is different. It is not built upon the same lines. It follows different laws. I went on Sunday night to the press reception at the Japanese headquarters. The ambassador is a buoyant man of the world, speaking excellent English and thoroughly acclimatized to an American press gathering. But many of the Japanese faces about him set my imagination busy, putting them back into the voluminous robes and the sashes holding the double swords with which I had first met them long ago in Japanese prints, and which would have become them so much better. Admiral Kato spoke in Japanese, and Prince Tokugawa in English. They welcomed the Hughes' proposals with warm generalities and hopes for peace, as we all hope for peace, with insufficient particulars. I got no conversation with any Japanese. They were not talking to us. They did not want to talk. It was a reception of hearty politeness and no exchanges. I found myself falling back upon an earlier impression. Some weeks ago I had a very illuminating talk in my garden at home with two Japanese visitors, Mr. Mashiko and Mr. Naguchi, who had come to discuss various educational ideas with me. And they told me things that seemed to me to be fundamentally important in this question. We build up our children, said Mr. Mashiko, upon a diametrically different plan from yours. We turn them the other way round. Obedience and devotion are our leading thoughts. All our sentiment, all our stories and poetry, the traditions of centuries, teach loyalty, blind, unquestioning loyalty, of wife to husband, of man to his lord, of everyone to the monarch. The loyalty is religious. So far as political and social questions go, it is fundamental. But your training cultivates independence, free thought, the unsparing criticism of superiors, institutions, relationships. Perhaps it is better in the end and more invigorating, but it seems to us wild and dangerous. We begin to have a sort of public opinion, but it is still diffident and timid. An American and an Englishman, he said, cared for his country because he believed it belonged to him. A Japanese cared for his country because he believed he belonged to it. One could not pass from one habit of mind to the other, he thought, without grave risks and dangers. It is easier to destroy obedience than to create responsibility. 
I was reminded of that conversation the other day by a remark made by a fellow journalist on the train to Washington. A Chinese will tell you what he thinks, like an American, but a Japanese always feels he is an agent, even if he isn't an accredited one. Now, this is very interesting and probably a very fundamental comparison. This difference in spirit will make the Japanese people a very different instrument from the American and English or French people. It will make the Japanese government a different thing from the governments it will be meeting in Washington. A people built up on obedience can be held and wielded as no modern democratic people can be held and wielded. It is different in kind. Unless this point is kept in mind, there are certain to be great and possibly dangerous misunderstandings in the Washington discussions. There have possibly been very dangerous misunderstandings already of the European powers by the Japanese. The Japanese are likely to think the Atlantic governments are more free to decide than they really are, and what they say is more conclusive than it really is and the Atlantic peoples are likely to think too much of the appearance of a liberal public opinion in Japan, and to imagine that a Japanese government may be thrown out, and its policy changed much more easily than is the case. But indeed Japan is a government, a military government, holding its people in its hand like a staff or a weapon, while America and France and Britain are people operating the governments, more or less imperfectly. In no relationship is confusion upon this point more probable and more dangerous than between Japan and Britain or France at the present time, and in no connection is there greater need of perfectly plain statement. Seeing that Britain is still a monarchy with many aristocratic forms, it is fatally easy for a Japanese statesman to fall into the belief that the British government is as completely in control, and its officials as able to bind or loose, as the Japanese government and officials, and because of this belief to trust to the private assurance and general attitude of personages in high places far more than they are justified in doing. The British democracy is very like the American democracy in its ability to keep watching what is happening overseas. It is preoccupied by domestic questions and things that are near to it. You cannot expect a Wiltshire farmer or a Lancashire cotton spinner to keep up, day by day, with the concession-hunting game in Persia or South China. But if that game of concession-hunting piles up to sufficiently serious consequences, these democracies are likely to wake up in a manner quite outside the Japanese range of possibilities, and to a large extent the same is true of France. It is the blessed privilege of an irresponsible journalist to say things that no diplomatist could ever say, and upon the relations of Japan, America, and England there are certain truths that seem to need saying very plainly at the present time. But though I am an irresponsible journalist, it is also to be noted that I am a very English Englishman, and that I know the way of thinking of my people. The British people have been sleeping happily upon the belief that war with America is impossible. And for them it is impossible. In this matter the British have a special and extraordinary instinct. They will not fight the United States of America. I will not go into the peculiar feelings that produce this disposition. They are feelings great numbers of Americans do not understand, and have indeed taken great pains not to understand. 
but to the common British, fighting Americans would have much the same relation to fighting other peoples that cannibalism would have to eating meat. I hear a certain type of American over here, slowly and heavily debating the Hughes proposals, on the assumption that there may be a war of America against Britain and Japan. Such an assumption is, if I may be permitted the word, idiotic. As a people, the British have not been thinking very much about the Pacific question. They have been preoccupied by Ireland and their own economic troubles. But if that question presently moves toward a level of intensity where war is possible, let there be no mistake about it in Japan. The ordinary English will be thinking with the Americans. They will read much the same stuff because they have the same language, and think in the same way because they have kindred habits of thought. It will not matter then what assurances and sentiments the Japanese may have had for official personages in Great Britain. For we are dealing here not with a matter of agreements, but with a kind of moral gravitation. If there is a conflict, the British masses will want to come in on the American side. And if it seems likely to be in the least an inconclusive conflict, they will certainly come in. If the rulers of the Japanese dream that any other combination is possible in the Pacific, they are under as dangerous a delusion as ever lured a great nation to disaster. But there are many signs that if ever the ruling people of Japan entertained this delusion, they are being disillusionized, and that they begin to realize that a war with America in the Pacific will mean a war with America, Britain, and possibly, to judge from the recent astonishing remark by that able writer Pertinax, France. France may use her influence at Washington on behalf of Japan in certain matters, but that is all Japan will get from France. The Japanese, I believe, now fully realize this, and the trend of recent Japanese utterances is all in the direction of discussion and the disavowal of any belligerent dreams. Yet Japan continues to arm, and though she now disavows war as her method, she sits very proudly and stiffly in her weapons at the parley. She may have limited and restrained her dreams, but there is still some minimum in her mind beyond which she will not retreat without a struggle. What is that minimum which will satisfy her without war? Will it satisfy her for good? Will it seem so permanently satisfactory to her that she will be willing not only to set aside the thought of and preparation for an immediate war, but, what is of far more importance, enter into such a binding agreement for her future international relationships as will enable her to beat the swords of her samurai into plowshares for good and all. Is Japan peculiarly an obstacle to the practical, if informal, federation of the world to which we all hope that things are moving? When I try to frame a hopeful answer to that question, it occurs to me with added force that Japan is not a people trying to express itself through a government as we Atlantic peoples are but a government, a small ruling class, in effective possession of an obedience-loving people. And I remember that that small ruling class has a long tradition of romantic and chivalrous swordsmanship. Is that ruling class going to keep its power, and is it going to preserve its tradition? No one would be more urgent than I for the complete disarmament of the entire world, but no one could be more convinced of the unwisdom of disarmament by America 
or any other power while any single country in the world maintains a spirit that must lead at last to a resumption of warfare to disarm in such a situation is to leave the trouble to accumulate upon our grandchildren to patch up a temporary peace based on the permitted expansion of such a power is simply to prepare for an expanded war in the future but is that japanese ruling class resolved at any cost even at the cost of another world war and at the risk of destroying japan to hold on to its present power and to adhere rigidly to its tradition in the last hundred years japan because of her aristocracy and because of her general obedience has achieved feats of adaptation to new conditions that are unparalleled in history as we have noted there have recently been indications of further changes in the spirit of japan she is said to be pressing forward with the education of the common people and the liberation of thought and discussion in the long run what is happening in the schools of japan is of more importance to mankind than what is happening in her dockyards but at present we do not know what is happening in the schools of japan one hears much of new japan and liberal japan and there is even an unofficial representative of the japanese opposition in washington but so far as we can judge at this distance we must be guided by the policy and methods of the japanese government before we can judge these we must consider the nature of the field in which they seem to clash most with american ideas and with american and european interests namely china and eastern asia generally in my next paper i will ask what is china and consider the nature of the needs and claims of japan in regard to china and the prohibitions and the renunciations the western powers want to impose upon her for it is on account of these restrictions and prohibitions that japan has been building her battleships her fighting fleet is to secure her a free hand in china and siberia it can have no other purpose and i shall take up the question whether the prohibitions and renunciations we want to force upon japan are not prohibitions and restrictions that we are bound in fairness to impose equally upon all powers concerned with china and the far east if the other powers are not prepared for extreme general retractions and renunciation in china if they want to bar japan from aggressive practices and exclusive advantages that other powers retain if we cling to any sort of racial distinction in these matters then i shall submit we are asking impossible things from japan and we are forcing her toward what must be indeed a very desperate gamble for her a refusal to enter into this proposed disarmament agreement and that means war end of part seven